Okay, how are you all? Less frazzled than me, I hope. This was moving week for us. Marion and I are now San Clementites. San Clementlings? San Clementians. I don't know. It's one of those. But, uh, but we moved on, on a Thursday. And uh, we've been in our house for almost 17 years. And so it's, uh, it's been quite an upheaval. And, and you all, anyone who's, who's gathered stuff for more than a year knows, but 17 years of stuff. You know, we've been purging and packing and preparing for, um, for weeks and weeks now. And John, could you cue the rain, buddy? Just like Truman Show. Cue the sun. Cue the rain. But it's, it's, been, it's been quite a... You know, it was interesting. Last night, uh, I got my desk set up, and I, and I set the desk up the way I had it in the old house. So I'd be focused on the work and, and just preparing for this morning. And all of a sudden, I'd look up and scare myself. It's like, where am I? It's like waking up out of a dream, and you don't exactly know where you are, because the desk looked the same, but then I look up and I see all this difference. Oh, yeah, okay, I know where I am. But this move was huh, just the move from Hades. And um, it, it was just, it was an amazing experience. And um, it's like, as we were moving up to it, I was projecting all the things that I wanted to make sure didn't happen. And they all did. <laughs> it was just one of those kind of, of situations. But um, we were trying, we were fighting with escrow and trying to get things happening so that we had a logical, um, you know, just layout of, of events. And everything was really tight. And there was water damage on the floor, so the ground floor floors had to be replaced. And so we were supposed to close on Monday, and they were supposed to start flooring on Tuesday. They said it was a two-day job, so they'd be done at end of day Wednesday. And then the movers were going to show up on Thursday, and we'd load and then be there in the afternoon. And then, of course, when all this... Oh, and then Cox was coming to put in the Internet and everything at 3 o'clock Thursday afternoon. We had... It's all perfectly planned. You know, me, OCD, planning, getting it all together, Right. You know this isn't going to end well. First thing that happened was is that escrow got delayed, and the closing got delayed 24 hours, so the floors couldn't start until Wednesday morning, and it was a two-day job. So I said, can you work really long? We'll pay overtime, whatever. Be done by 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock when the truck rolls up. So at 1 o'clock when the truck rolls up, they're barely halfway finished. And if you remember Thursday, it was a monsoon. You know, it's like, how many days does it really rain in California? We just won the lottery. You know, the day we're moving, it wasn't just sprinkling. It was a torrential rain. And we had a crew of four guys that came to our house in the morning and and they're loading and packing and we're in the rain. And I'm just thinking, how is this going to happen? How is this going to work? You know, how do you you do this in the rain? And um, and then by the time we loaded the truck and got there, then a crew of four was also working on the floor. So we got these two crews coming in. In the rain, tracking in leaves and water and mud on the new floor that they're laying down and bumping into each other and trying to figure out the whole garage was a workshop. They had laid out all of their saws and all the stuff that they do to be the floor. So they moved over to a side. They started putting things in. It's going up. It was insane. And then, of course, at 2 o'clock, the first Cox guy shows up. And then a second Cox guy shows up trying to do a different job. We had four crews doing four different things at the same time in the pouring, driving rain. I mean, it was crazy. And then if that wasn't enough, our boys, our two boys, had stayed with um, their sister who just got married and lives in Mission Viejo for the day because they just would have been comatose and in the way anyways. 
which is pretty much how I felt, comatose and in the way. So Marianne, at the end of at the evening, when finally everyone had left, she went and picked them up and did some shopping, and on the way back, she had a car accident. <laughs> and someone just came over from the left-hand lane right in front of her, slowed down. They were trying to hit an off-ramp, and she hit them. And so she's calling me, and she's saying, I just had an accident. What do I do? And, you know, and then we're talking through that. And then she couldn't find her insurance card, of course. So I'm taking a picture of mine, because everything's packed. You know, we got all the records, but it's all packed away someplace. Um, and she gets home and is just like, what did we do? <laughs> what is this? You know, they didn't finish the floors until 7 p.m. Friday night, and then it started to feel more like home. We, the workers left. We could push the furniture back to the walls and see a little bit of the floor and, and start to feel like it was maybe our home, for real. But the reason I'm telling you this is because those two crews, the movers and the floor installers, really caught my attention. There's a crew of four guys, young guys, um, you know, all tatted up and, and uh, you know, rough looking. And these guys were the most personable young men I think I've encountered in a long time. Every single one of them took time and took pains to introduce themselves to me, to Marion, to anybody who came. Nina came over for a while with Craig. They introduced themselves to, to them. Um, if you found yourself alone in a room with them, they'd strike up a conversation and just start talking small talk. And they were laughing and they were... The rain did not phase them a bit. You know, they just threw on their hoods and they're just doing it. They wrapped everything up, you know, extra, extra tight, got it on the truck. And they're almost like finding ways to be more competitive. See, yeah, there's a filing cabinet up here, but it's empty. I think I can one-man it, you know, and he's, well, he's talking about. They were just absolutely cheerful and enthusiastic, full of energy the entire day until we got to the other side. And then you get to the house, and the, the crew is there who's a floor installer that are all sort of middle-aged Hispanic Latino men, and they've got the music plan. <laughs> you know, if you've ever worked around Latinos, they always have the music playing. And this is traditional music, you know. It's the mix of the German umpa band and the, uh, and the Mexican that makes the mariachi, you know. But it was all that feel, you know, just all, everything was in three, I think. There was nothing. In, but they were singing along with that music, and they were talking really fast and talking to each other, you know. And I know enough Spanish to know when I was hearing the curse words because I learned those first. But, you know, it's just there was an energy there, too. Now, I wasn't having the same experience as they were. Why do you think that was? It was the same circumstances. It was the same rain, the same house, the same floor, same stuff. But I was having a very different experience. And I started thinking about that. You know, why was my experience so different from theirs? I was worried, of course. It was my stuff, of course. I was tired. But there was really something more about it. I remember, and this is a story I've told before, but it sticks in my mind. I think it'll be in there until my dying day. Um, one of the last secular jobs that I worked uh, in, in, uh, in an office setting, there was something wrong with my computer, and I was fighting it for days and trying to get it to work. Finally, I just gave up and called the computer geek guy to come over. And he comes over. Literally, he had the belt with the, with the tools and the belt and everything and the pocket protector. And he comes in, and he looks at the screen, and he's looking and saying, Wow, I've never seen this before. He was like excited. This is the bane of my existence. He was all excited because he was finding something new that he could deal with. And, and it was just so interesting. Again, that difference, same issue, 
Same problem, two completely different reactions. I remember reading a story about Fred Rogers. Remember Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers? He was actually a, a Presbyterian minister. And when he was in seminary, he went to go hear a preacher that he really wanted to hear. And he went with a friend of his, a woman, and they, they drove wherever they drove to go hear this preacher speak. And he really wanted to learn about you know, speaking. He wanted to learn about you know, homilies and, and how to construct a message because that's really what he was all about. And when he got there, he was really disappointed because that preacher was not speaking that day. And they had an itinerant supply preacher that came in. And he was really upset about it, and he's listening to this guy, and he's just tearing him apart the entire time he's speaking. You know, he's not developing this right, and he's not doing this. And then at the end of it all, he turns to his friend to just start to tear, you know, do the postmortem, and tears are streaming down her face. You know, she was hearing exactly what she needed to hear at that moment. Same circumstances, same speaker, two completely different reactions, different experiences. And so I started thinking about this. What makes an experience happy or unhappy? How important is happiness anyway, do you think? How important is it? Are we supposed to be about happiness? Is happiness your prime goal? Is it a prime motivator for you in the choices you make, in the decisions you make, in the things that you do? Everything that you choose in life. Isn't happiness behind it in some way? Of course it is. Should be. Happiness is really what is driving. Have you, have you ever heard of a heat-seeking missile? Well, we're all pleasure-seeking missiles. That's exactly what we are. We're designed that way. We're supposed to be that way. Our survival depends on it. We seek pleasure and we avoid pain. It's the way that we're wired. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It sounds selfish to our Christian ears, to our religious ears. It sounds like something that we're supposed to be avoiding as good Christians. But the truth of the matter is, that's how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to seek pleasure and avoid pain. The question is, what do you take pleasure in? That's really what it comes down to. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I wanted to read a little bit from a talk that was given on TED by Matt Killingsworth. And he's a researcher from Harvard. And he was trying to figure out happiness. What makes people happy? How does happiness work? And he came up with an ingenious way to do this using the iPhone. He created an app for the iPhone that he got somehow 15,000 people to put on their phones from all different walks of life, age groups, I don't know how many different countries were involved, really creating a lot of data from a lot of variables and different types of people. He ended up with over 650,000 reports, real-time reports. And what this app would do would simply ring people randomly during the day and ask them a series of questions. And the set of questions that I'm interested in right now was, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And how happy are you on a sliding scale? And everything was multiple choice. So you could have these different activities that you're doing and things you were thinking about. And he came to some conclusions, some conclusions about happiness through this experiment. But let me pick it up here. He says, so people want a lot of things out of life. But I think more than anything else, they want happiness. Aristotle called happiness the chief good, the end towards which all things aim. 
According to this view, the reason we want a big house or a nice car or a good job isn't that these things are intrinsically valuable. It's that we expect them to bring us happiness. Now, in the last 50 years, we Americans have gotten a lot of the things that we want. We're richer. We live longer. We have access to technology that would have seemed like science fiction just a few years ago. The paradox of happiness is that even though the objective conditions of our lives have improved dramatically, we haven't actually gotten any happier. Maybe because these conventional notions of progress haven't delivered big benefits in terms of happiness, there's been an increased interest in recent years in happiness itself. People have been debating the causes of happiness for a really long time, in fact, for thousands of years, but it seems like many of those debates remain unresolved. In the last few years, there's been an explosion in research on happiness. For example, we've learned a lot about its demographics, how things like income and education, gender and marriage relate to it. But one of the puzzles, one of the puzzles this has revealed is that factors like these don't seem to have particularly strong effects. Yes, it's better to make more money rather than less or to graduate from college instead of dropping out, but the differences in happiness tend to be small. Which leaves the question, what are the big causes of happiness? I think that's a question we really haven't answered yet. But I think something that has the potential to be an answer is that maybe happiness has an awful lot to do with the contents of our moment-to-moment experiences. It certainly seems that as we're going about our lives and what we're doing, who we're with, what we're thinking about, have a big influence on happiness. And yet these are the very factors that have been very difficult. In fact, almost impossible for scientists to study. So if we think we're not after happiness, if we think we're not about happiness, we're really just kidding ourselves. Everything we do, every choice we make is for happiness. Again, it's just that matter of what you take pleasure in. Now you might be thinking, what about the people that submit themselves to another person? Who sacrifice for the other person? Who delay all their gratification and and take difficult jobs or go on mission trips or do all these self-sacrificial things, you know, aren't they moving against their happiness? Well, if you really break it down, it's just they're taking happiness in something different, right? If you submit yourself to another, if you sacrifice yourself to another, what are you really saying? If you're not codependent, at least, what you're really saying is, is that you take more pleasure in the other person's happiness than necessarily in doing the thing that you might think you'd want to do at the moment. George Bailey in Wonderful Life, remember? You know, kind of like that. And ultimately, there is heaven. There's the afterlife. There's what we believe about our spirituality, that beyond the, the earthly pleasures, there's a greater pleasure. And so maybe in our thinking, we skip over these pleasures in order to get that hereafter pleasure, that eternal pleasure later on. But if you think about it, everything is geared this way. We're all looking for pleasure and avoiding pain. I had some uh, group sessions that we do ongoing here. And uh, this topic came up. And I asked the group, same thing, you know, is happiness a major motivator for you? Does it guide your choices? Does it guide your decisions? Most people said yes in the group. There was a few who said no. 
But by the end of the session, as we had gone through this, a lot of those people had changed their mind. They started to realize, okay, yeah, it really is happiness that I'm after, even if it's maybe a few layers back. After that, I asked them, how much time do you spend being happy or unhappy? It turned out most people were more characterized by unhappiness than they were characterized by happiness. They spent more time feeling unhappy. And I asked them why they thought they felt that way. Unhappy or happy? What was the genesis of that feeling of happiness or unhappiness? And they really couldn't articulate it. They couldn't respond. Then I asked for examples of moments of happiness or unhappiness. And we got several dozen of them in, in the session that we were talking through. And it was things that you would expect. Women would talk about childbirth. Men would talk about, one guy talked about a hunting trip in vivid detail, you know, right down to the kill, you know. So the women are squirming at this thing, but, you know, the guy, was, that was his moment of happiness. That's where he connected. Another guy was, it was motocross, you know. It was time spent with family. It was just watching a small child play on the living room floor. Those were moments that they said were happy moments that stood out in their memories. And unhappy moments were moments of betrayal, moments of hurt, moments of, of neglect. And so we got the gamut of happiness and unhappiness. And I asked them if they saw a common thread that was running through all of these that could start to give us a definition of happiness, a working definition that we could use in our spiritual journey, that we could use in moving forward. So back to Killingsworth now. He's got these 650,000 real-time reports. What did he find? He found that people who spent their time thinking about the thing that they were actually doing were happier than people who didn't. He called it mind-wandering. The opposite of that is mindfulness, presence, here-nowness, thinking about what you're actually doing. Brother Lawrence says, I banish all thoughts except the one that is essential for the duty at hand. People who could do that were happier than those who didn't. And he saw a causal effect that Mind-wandering now created unhappiness later. It wasn't the reverse. There was really a causal effect. Your state of mind causes the sensation of happiness or unhappiness. Even if you're doing something you don't particularly like, and even if you're thinking about something pleasurable, you're still a little bit less happy than you would be if you were just thinking about the thing that you were doing. He uses the example of a commute to work. Everybody hates that, right? In traffic. But if you're thinking about the actual commute, if you're watching the sensations of moving through the traffic and feeling what is going on, you're actually happier than if you let your mind wander someplace else. What he found was that mind-wandering, mindfulness, had everything to do with the sensations of what we call happy. And I think this is what we need to do. We need to redefine happiness, what we mean by happiness. Because why does mindfulness, why does presence even matter to happiness? If we don't redefine it to figure it out, then we're never really going to be able to use this information anyway. We feel what we call happy, a sense of well-being, contentment, even euphoria at times. When we're connected, that's when we feel those things. Not when certain circumstances present themselves. It's about the connection. Being happy, put this on your fridge, being happy is no more or less 
returning to our original position. Oneness, unity, connection. We had it when we were born. That's why Jesus keeps pointing back to the child. We lose it over time. We lose it with the age of reason. We lose it with the thousand hurts and slings and arrows that we have to face in life. Being happy is a return to that original position. Kind of like the end of the flight. You've got to put your seats back into the original position. Happiness is the feeling of when we have returned to this original position, back to this childlike state before reason and all these hurts took us and told us that we were supposed to be apart, told us somehow that we were standing apart from everyone. It's ironic that we would have to relearn this to unlearn everything in order to get back to where we started at the beginning, but there it is. Take a look at Paul at Philippians 4. It's in your inserts and probably up on the screens by now. How you doing back there, John? Good job, man. Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had to learn this. He had to relearn this. He had to unlearn whatever he had to unlearn in order to see again what was already there. The contentment he felt, the happiness he felt in all these different circumstances came from within, came from this place. Happiness and contentment is this state of being connected, present, mindful. And I think here's the most important point, and I think where Matt Killingsworth got it a little wrong. Mindfulness doesn't lead to happiness. Presence doesn't lead to happiness. Mindfulness and presence are happiness. Do you see the distinction? They don't lead to it. They are it. They are happiness. All the things that we do mean nothing to happiness. The things intrinsically that we do, the jobs that we perform, the careers that we pursue, the relationships, the things that we acquire, all of that stuff means nothing to happiness until we do them or experience them mindfully with full presence. And anything that we do in full presence, whatever it is, whether you think you like it or whether you think you don't, we'll feel happy. We'll feel content. We'll feel like happiness. We chase after things that have made us feel happy. Right? Childbirth made us feel happy. How many more kids do you want to have? I don't know about that one. You know? You got a car. You had a job. You went on a thrill ride. You went to a theme park. You went to the beach. And those things made us feel happy. And so we go back to the beach. We go back to the theme park. We buy another car. We find another lover. Whatever it is, we look for these things that make us happy. Things that have made us feel happy. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, sports, dance, work, religion... But all of these things don't make us happy. They make us present. They make us mindful. The things that we tend to chase after are things that are intense enough, 
that naturally they blow out all the other thoughts. Thrill rides do that. They scare you just enough. Extreme sports do that because you've got to pay attention. You've got to put your foot in the right crack. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Motocross, very exacting sport. It requires your full attention. You feel alive. You feel happy. It's not the bike. It's not the cliff face. The pain of childbirth focuses you like nothing else probably. I don't know. I'm just hearing stories here. But I do know that it is intense enough to naturally blow that out. And so we chase after the thing, not realizing that the thing didn't make us feel that way. It made us mindful. And the mindfulness is that experience. It made us present, which made us feel happy. And once we understand this distinction, then like Paul, we also can learn to be content, learn to be happy in all our circumstances. Look how Jesus puts it at Matthew 6. We've read this a lot of times, but take a look at it from this point of view. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now this is important because he's setting the whole thing up here. Wealth here is mamona in the original language. And that doesn't just mean physical wealth. That means anything that you pile up in your life that comes to define you. And in, any, in other words, it's what you identify with. It could be a job. It could be a child. It could be a spouse. It can be a religion, a church, faith. It can be anything. And the thing can be really good. But as soon as we fixate on it, as soon as we identify it, as soon as it defines us and defines our sense of happiness, now it's an idol. Now you are serving two masters. And this is what Jesus is talking about. The divided mind in any moment, not being fully focused on what you're doing, is serving two masters. Always projecting outward for the thing that you think you need in order to be fulfilled, in order to be happy, in order to be, what? A good enough Christian, a good enough son, daughter, sister, mother, brother, all the things that we project outward that we think we have to acquire and bring in becomes this divided mind, becomes the second master. And it's sneaky. We don't understand that. We don't see that. We call it virtue, the thing that we're going after. But it's always taking us away from the present moment. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. The word for worry here. Let me continue. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life worth more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear for clothing? 
For the Gentiles eagerly, eagerly seek all these things. And Gentiles is probably not a really good translation there. The good translation is just those who do not know our God. Those who are not of our tribe. Someone who doesn't get what we get. You know, they seek all these things. So why are we doing it too? We know our God. We know who he is. We know the good news. Why are we acting like those who don't really understand the nature of things? For the Gentiles equally, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom. That's presence. That is full focus on this moment and the presence of God within this moment. And his righteousness, God's righteousness, unity, oneness, multiple things functioning as one. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the unity, the presence, the mindfulness of this moment. And everything else is added. It doesn't work the other way. When we seek all the things, the tributaries downstream, we're always projecting outward and we miss the source. It can't work the other way. So do not, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Unless you're moving in the rain, of course, and then that doesn't work. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, the word for worry here is literally taking thought. Taking thought. We're all taking thought. Half of you are taking thought right now, somewhere else other than this room. Judging, comparing, projecting. That's what we do. All the things that Jesus tells us not to do. Don't judge, you know? Comparing ourselves to others, judging the moment against some expectation, right? All these things, projecting outward into tomorrow, the things that we think we need. By definition, those actions mentally take us anywhere except here and now. Anywhere except kingdom now. This is why Jesus tells us. It's not a moral standard that we have to obey or else. It's just if you are doing these things, you can't by definition be where I am. That's why Jesus says, don't worry. Don't judge. Don't practice right, righteousness for any remote outcome out there. It's either right here, right now, connected with the person that you are helping, or it's nothing. All of these take us exactly where. And I suppose you could ask, is then Jesus just about happiness? Well, that doesn't sound right, especially those of you who have been raised as good Christians. Jesus is about sacrifice, about the cross. Isn't Jesus about those things rather than just happiness? Doesn't that sound selfish again? Jesus isn't primarily about happiness in the way that he stated his message, but Jesus is everything about getting us into kingdom. And when you're in kingdom, guess what? You feel happy. So everything Jesus is talking about, everything he's doing is pushing us into, guiding us into a place where we will feel, feel that contentment, that connection, that happiness. Now some of you might be thinking, well, I'm trying real hard. I'm trying to be good. I'm getting up for prayer. I'm here, aren't I? I came here on a Sunday morning. You know, I do my devotions. I do this. I read my Bible. And I'm still really struggling. I'm still really having a hard time. Well, what's that all about? 
All I can say is, if we are struggling, we're not in kingdom in that moment. We're still good people. We're still completely loved. We're still completely saved. How are you understand that term? But at that moment, we're still projecting. We are still worried about something. I'm working hard here. Why aren't I getting the benefits? I'm worried that I'm not good enough. I'm worried that God has passed me by. I'm worried that I have not met the standard in some way. And by definition, that takes me out of the moment. But every one of you know the moments that I'm talking about. Every one of you has felt those moments of pure connection, those intense moments. So you know you can do it. To do it consistently, though, to do it repeatedly, takes a different type of training. You have to literally train yourself, unlearn and relearn what the child knows instinctively, that in whatever circumstance you find yourself, everything is okay. Everything is right here, right now. I wanted to read you just a little passage. It's from Vernon Manning's book, but he's actually quoting John Toller. And just take a listen. 14th century theologian and mystic John Toller prayed for eight years that God would send him a person who would teach him the true way of perfection. One day while at prayer, he heard a voice from within telling him to go outside to the steps of the church, and there he would meet his mentor. He obeyed without hesitation. On the church steps, Toller found a barefoot ragamuffin in rags, wounded and caked in blood. Toller greeted the man cordially. Good morning, dear brother. May God give you a good day and grant you a happy life. Sir, replied, replied the ragamuffin, I do not remember ever having a bad day. Don't you hate people like that? I do not remember ever having a bad day. Stunned, Toller asked him how that was possible, since sadness and grief are part of the human condition. The beggar explained, You wished me a good day. And I replied that I cannot recall ever having spent a bad day. You see, whether my stomach is full or I am famished with hunger, I praise God equally. When I am rebuffed and despised, I still thank God. My trust in God's providence and his plan for my life is absolute. So there is no such thing as a bad day. He continued, Sir, you also wished me a happy life. I must insist that I am always happy for it would be untruthful to state otherwise. My experience of God has taught me that whatever he does must of necessity be good. Thus, everything that I receive from his loving hand or whatever he permits me to receive from the hands of others, be it prosperity or adversity, sweet or bitter, I accept with joy and see it as a sign of his favor. For many, many years now, my first resolution each morning is to attach myself to nothing but the will of God alone. I have learned that the will of God is the love of God. The will of God. The pleasure, the delight, the deepest purpose, that's what will actually means in the original language. The pleasure of God is the love of God. The delight of God is the love of God. The deepest purpose of God is the love of God. Any by the outpouring of his grace, I have so merged my will with his that whatever he wills, I will too. Therefore, I have always been happy. 
Now, I know how that sounds, right? Too good to be true. It's like, okay, yeah, well, it's okay for you to say, but what's really going on here? But point and principle remain, even if it seems a little hyperbolic, even if it seems a little overblown. And what I can tell you is that whether I prayed for it or not, God sent me those two crews of men to teach me the way of perfection. They were certainly the most unlikely teachers that I could imagine. These young, tatted guys, you know, and the middle-aged Hispanics. But with their music, with their enthusiasm, with their laughter and enthusiasm just to get out into the rain and move those boxes, move that refrigerator, take the handles off, do whatever they had to do. They showed me another way to be able to deal with a very difficult day. The day didn't matter to them. They found their place. They found their connection. And you know what? I want to have what they're having. And I think you probably do too. Let people teach you. Look around. Pay attention. In any situation, no matter how difficult, we can find someone who is having another experience, who's got tears streaming down their face because they see something that we missed. It's up to us not to miss so that we can have the same experience and literally have what they're having. And that's kingdom. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. And he's our chief teacher. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you from me and Marion for our family and the move and everyone who helped us and was so gracious to us and brought us chili and brownies and things. And it is so good to feel connected, to feel like there's new possibility of community and neighborhood. This ongoing outpouring that you show us every day, help us not to miss it. Help us to see what's really here. Help us to see that it already all is here. And there's nothing we need to import to this moment to make it perfect, to make it kingdom, to make it feel like happiness. Thank you, Father, from the bottom of our hearts for everything that you've done to guide us. We love you. Help us to turn and see that love more and more clearly each day of this new year. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.